This will come as no great surprise to any of you who've listened to many of my sermons, but uh, we're going to start today on a bit of a wonky, nerdy sort of note that I hope will turn out to be relevant. Shocker, I know. It's Bible translation pet peeve time, and the crowd went wild. Yay! I have long been annoyed that pretty much every translation of the Old Testament that you can find uses the all capital THE LORD to translate what is in the actual Hebrew, the letters Y-H-W-H. Usually that's pronounced Yahweh, which doesn't mean the Lord at all, but is instead the name that God gives when Moses asks for God's name in the burning bush story. The Hebrew for the Lord would be Baal, actually, which is the name of one of the chief Canaanite competitors to Yahweh for the people's affections through much of the story of the Old Testament. So writing the Lord, Baal, instead of God's name, Yahweh, It's a little ironic, you might say. The only reason, by the way, to put the Lord is a Jewish custom of not saying God's name that didn't begin until after the Old Testament was written, and which was intended as a way to prevent any breaking of the commandment to not take God's name in vain by just not ever saying the name at all. So my problem with this mistranslation is that it obscures the meaning of the Bible for people who don't realize that those capital letters they're reading aren't what's actually there. And the passage we're looking at today is a really good example of that. It's a curious little passage, really. It's the one in chapter 6 of Exodus that is God's response to the grumbling of the people and of Moses after the initial approach to Pharaoh fails and the people are still left unfree and now making bricks with no straw. Moses, you may remember, comes to God to accuse God of doing nothing at all to help the people. And in fact, that God has left the people even worse off than they had been before. And then this passage that we're going to look at today is how God responds. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand he will let them go. By a mighty hand he will drive them out of his land. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they resided as aliens. I have also heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians have enslaved, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord, Yahweh, and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord, Yahweh. Now, when we read that passage using the Lord, parts of it sound a bit ridiculous. My name, the Lord. (laughs) Hey, that's Mr. The Lord to you. But more importantly than that, this passage is all about the ancestors of the Israelites not knowing something that the Exodus Israelites will know about God's name. And saying the Lord communicates that what's important here, what the ancestors didn't know when they knew God as God Almighty instead of Yahweh, but which God is making known now, is that God is powerful and in charge. That is, after all, what the Lord means. A Lord is someone in charge, someone to be obeyed and submitted to. But to read this passage in that way, that what matters is God showing everyone who's boss, is to miss what's actually going on. 
And I think this is all the more a problem because that's actually what a lot of people think the Exodus story is about. God's showing Pharaoh who's boss. And I think the translation or mistranslation of the Lord is no small part of that. But here's the thing. Yahweh is not a name that means in charge. But like Meredith talked about a few weeks back, it's a name that conveys at least three facets of who God is. First, the being of God. I am is the most common translation of the name. That God was, is, and will continue to be one God forever. Second, it's a name that conveys presence. I will be there is also a possible translation. It highlights God's presence with humans always and in all circumstances. And then third, it's a name that conveys action. I will be what I need to be is another possible way of understanding what the word means. And that, I think, is what this particular passage is highlighting. What God says in this passage is that while God made themselves known to the ancestors through the name God Almighty, they did not know God's name Yahweh. They knew God, but they didn't know God at the same time. Now, if you go back and read the Genesis stories, you will find the Lord written there in your translation. Yahweh appears in those stories. So did Abraham know the name Yahweh or did he not? Well, this passage says that he didn't, but Genesis would seem to indicate that he did since the name shows up there. Now, what's most likely happening is that since the stories in Genesis were written down centuries after they happened, after the Exodus even, the writer of Genesis already knew the name Yahweh. And so the writer places that name back anachronistically to make the story work better for the contemporary readers who were hearing the story hundreds of years later when the name Yahweh was known. The author is making the point that that was the same God back then that we know now by using the same name, even if it wasn't the name that Abraham actually knew in reality. And in fact, as a bit of a confirmation, some evidence to support this, and I thought this was kind of interesting, it's only after the burning bush story when Yahweh is introduced that you ever see people's names that include Yah, the short form of Yahweh. Joshua, who shows up later on in Exodus and the Pentateuch, is actually the name Yeshua in Hebrew. It's also actually the name Jesus when you use the Greek spelling. They're all Yeshua in Hebrew. And for some reason in German, Y became a J, and that kind of continued on into some early English translations, which incidentally is why sometimes in older translations you will see Jehovah instead of Yahweh. It's the same Hebrew spelling, but a different transliteration. Jehovah, Yahweh, same thing. Well, there aren't any Yah names in Genesis, apparently because the name Yahweh wasn't known. It's after, only after that you get Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on. But the point here is not just that the ancestors lacked some specific detail about God's name. It's that they actually didn't know God, not fully. Because the name of a God is not just a piece of trivia, a nice thing to know. It is central to the God's character. It is who they are in some fundamental sense. So God here is saying the striking thing that while Abraham conversed with God, he didn't know God, not fully, not in the way that the people of Israel are about to know God in the Exodus. Isn't that interesting that it's possible to know God without, well, knowing God? But it makes sense too. There are plenty of people that we know 
who know lots of things about Jesus, but who don't know Jesus. And conversely, there are plenty of people who couldn't begin to give some sort of theological statement about Jesus's identity as the second person of the Trinity, but they know Jesus at a deep, deep level nonetheless. The book of James even talks about demons believing in God and shuddering because they don't know God. They know God, but they don't know God. God had made promises to the ancestors, but Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were lacking something in their knowing of God. So what was it that they were lacking? They knew of God's existence, obviously. They knew of God's presence. They had spoken to God, wrestled with God in the case of Jacob. So what were they missing? They were missing that third aspect of God's name, God's action. They could not know God, not fully, because they had not experienced God acting on their behalf, actually keeping the promises that they had made, and in the process showing who they are for all to see. And that is what this passage is about. Not knowing God because God is in charge as the Lord, but knowing that God is Yahweh, the God who will act on their behalf. Starting again in verse 6, I am Yahweh, and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. This whole passage is defining who Yahweh is, what it means for God to say, I am Yahweh. And the focus all along is on God acting to free the people, to take them as God's own special family, and to give them the land that was promised to Abraham. They will know God because they will see God act in those ways. They will know God because they will experience God's faithfulness. And that will reveal aspects of who God is that the ancestors could not had not known. The people of Israel are going to see God's outstretched arm, freeing them from the most powerful man in the world, defeating the supposed gods of the Egyptians at every turn, saving them from the threat of the mightiest army they had ever seen, giving them a land flowing with milk and honey, and taking them to be God's special people, God's children, as God puts it to Moses elsewhere. They will know God's name by experiencing God's character in action on their behalf. I wonder how many people today stop at just knowing God without knowing God. I think churches are full of people who have learned lots of things about God, know the things they're supposed to believe, but who don't know God. And in this instance, I'm not really talking about reading the Bible and praying more, spending time with God in conversation, although those are good things too. Those are important parts of knowing God. I'm not wanting to deny that. But Abraham is described as doing those things in Genesis. And here, God says that even so, Abraham didn't know God fully. I'm talking more about knowing God through experiencing God's action on our behalf. And I think there are two main ways that happens. The first is, like in our story here, when we are in dire straits and God comes through for us. When we are in trouble and God helps us. When we are suffering and God shows up for us. I think this happens far more often than we notice maybe in ways different than we would have expected. And the way for us to get to know God in this way is to practice noticing what God has done for us, paying attention to ways God saw us through trouble and out the other side. God being present with us, God giving us strength to keep going, God's spirit directing us when we don't know which way to turn, 
God's people showing up and supporting us in any number of ways. When we practice noticing and remembering the times when God came through for us, we are coming to know God in the way this passage highlights. God's faithfulness stops being a thing we read about in Romans, a theme we notice through Judges, a word we sing about in worship songs. It starts to become something we know because we've seen it in action. The second way we can get to know God in the way this passage is talking about is to use the old cliche (laughs) to step out in faith. To actively put our trust in God by doing or not doing something that makes us vulnerable. Trusting that God will come through by making it okay. This is any time we choose to do things differently than the culture in which we find ourselves. To go against the grain of our workplace culture or our extended family culture or our friend circles culture. Doing things that are a bit strange or out of the ordinary. Not, not just for the sake of being strange, but because we realize that the way things are done in that particular culture, are not aligned with who God is or with who God invites us to be in in certain ways, not always, but some. It's not that the whole culture is bad, but maybe there are some ways that choosing to follow Jesus might be in tension with just the way things are done. And that makes us vulnerable because that's why everyone does things that way in the first place, because not doing them that way stands out, makes a person vulnerable. And in order to make that decision, we need to trust that God will come through for us. In Moses' case, he had to trust that God would come through when he went to Pharaoh, that his own story wouldn't end by being strung up by Pharaoh or by his own people who are angry for making their lives even worse. But in going to Pharaoh, leading the people out of Egypt, and watching God come through again and again, Moses was able to come to know who God is in a way that he never could in a lifetime of shepherding sheep in the wilderness. It didn't go quite how it was supposed to, maybe, or at least not how Moses would probably have expected or wanted. But God's promise is never that it will all go smoothly. It's that God can be trusted. That in the end, we will be able to look back and say, God was with me. God brought me through. God was faithful. And whatever happened in the end, it was all okay because of who Yahweh is. Not in the end, I was successful. Not in the end, it all went how I wanted it to. Not in the end, I had a nice, easy, comfortable life. In the end, God brought brought me through and showed that I was no fool for trusting Yahweh. Sometimes you hear the cliche of the entrepreneurial, what would you do if you knew you wouldn't fail? It's meant to be an encouragement to take risks and try things, but that's not what I'm talking about here so much. Because God doesn't promise that we won't ever fail. God promises to be with us through both success and failure, whichever results from our faithfully following God's leading. The better question for us is slightly different. What would you do if you knew that, whatever the result, God would make it all okay somehow, some way? And what would you stop doing if you knew that, whatever the result, God would make it all okay? Some of us might already be more open to God's promptings. We might already have a sense of God asking us to do or not do something, to talk to someone, to say no, to say yes, to give time or money beyond what seems prudent or reasonable, to remove something from our calendar that feels like an obligation but will free up time for something else, to do our jobs in a certain way that might not maximize profits but does maximize our ability to reflect God's character to the world. In our time together, we spent some time using a finger labyrinth as a tool for us to reflect on those questions. 
it's kind of like a maze. It has one way in, one way out. It's a physical thing to do to help focus your mind and have your body doing something while your brain is reflecting. But we slowly traced our finger into the center of the maze with the question that we considered being, what would you do if you knew that whatever the result, God would make it all okay? What is God inviting you to start, to say yes to, to begin that might seem like a stretch in some way, that might take faith, but which would be an opportunity for us to come to know God in the way this passage is talking about? And then on the way back out, what would you stop doing? If you knew that, whatever the result, God would make it all okay. What might seem like you just can't stop because of the obligations involved, because of the vulnerability it might bring with it, but that it's something that's standing in the way of you being who God wants you to be and of the life that God is offering. What would you do if you knew that whatever the result, God would make it all okay? And what would you stop doing if you knew that whatever the result, God would make it all okay? I would invite you to reflect on those questions as well in whatever way works for you. You can find a finger labyrinth on the internet pretty easily by just Googling for one. May our God show us that they are a God who can be trusted, that they are Yahweh, a God who is, a God who is present with us, and a God who will act on our behalf because they are faithful. Amen.